It's a fact. Life can be hard, and dealing with its challenges is no mean feat. The ability to recover quickly in the face of adversity is known as resilience, and it can be our best ally during times of stress. Welcome to The Resilient Road. In this series, we'll look at human stories of perseverance, exploring what makes someone resilient and what we can all do to help nurture this process in our own lives. My name's Sinead, and I'm joined by my colleagues Brian. Hello. And Elle. Hi. And we're part of Positive Group, a team that uses psychology and neuroscience to help people make positive changes to improve their health and well-being. One of the most disturbing things they found was it could get into people. It would stay in them. And not only would it stay there, but over time, every little additional exposure would build up. And they found that this chemical could cause cancer. And they're realizing it's in the public drinking water. Okay, so here we are at the last episode in the series. And today we're going to be looking at the story of Rob Bellot, a lawyer from Ohio who spent decades in legal battles with DuPont after he discovered that they were contaminating local drinking water near their manufacturing plant in West Virginia. This is a story of perseverance in the face of incredible odds. Brian, do you think you have this level of perseverance within you? I like to think I've got some perseverance in some domains, but I think uh, Rob's story is just absolutely remarkable because he shows this resilience, this determination and endurance through uh, a very, very long period. I mean, years. And uh, I'm not sure I would uh, have that degree of grit and perseverance. What about you, Elle? Are you a determined person? I think I have levels of determination. I think we all do. But um, I think there's some people out there that are really extraordinary. Definitely. And Rob's story is incredible. He's an absolutely extraordinary person. And I'm really keen to unpack as we listen to his story, how he managed to keep going in the face of the odds that were really highly stacked against him. So what was it that enabled him to endure and persist over decades? I joined our law firm in 1990 with really no technical or science background of any kind. But we had what we called an environmental group. And a lot of what we were doing back then was representing primarily our bigger corporate clients in helping them navigate and understand all the complex federal and state environmental rules and regulations. And a lot of what we called Superfund work. Uh, these were hazardous waste sites all over the United States. And typically uh, we were representing companies that were debating and fighting over who paid how much to clean those sites up. My personality was such that I wasn't the kind that was always out sort of uh, glad-handing and uh, schmoozing or enjoying cocktail parties or things of that nature where you would be doing business development and wooing people. Um, I, I felt most comfortable with the work, frankly, with you know, digging through documents, with putting things together. Oh, 
I was sitting in my office. This was October of 1998, and the phone rang, and there was a gentleman on the other line who uh, started uh, telling me all about cows that were dying on this property in West Virginia. And I had no idea who this guy was, why he was calling me. And frankly, I was about to hang up. And he blurted out, well, I got your name from your grandmother. And so I paused and paid a little closer attention to try to understand how was he connected to my grandmother and how how did this call come to me? And uh, learned that he owned property right outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia, uh, which is the town where my mom's entire family had grown up. He was raising cattle and his animals were dropping dead. They were drinking white foaming water that he could see coming out of a landfill. He was convinced he knew there was something in that water killing these animals. And he had been trying to get the attention of the state EPA, the federal EPA. He had called the company that owned the landfill. And then he explained that company was DuPont. Yeah, and I understood DuPont was one of the world's biggest chemical companies. They were one of the companies that um, I frequently dealt with at all of these cleanup sites all across the country. So he was desperately looking for somebody that might be able to help him out. He made the, I guess it was about a three, three and a half hour drive with his wife, Sandra. They came up to our offices armed with boxes of videotapes. You know, these were the days of VHS tapes. And, um, you know, it was pretty amazing stuff. And you could see these animals with black teeth that were skin and bones wasting away. They had tumors. Um, He even had videotape uh, of himself cutting into these animals. You could see these deformed organs and green ooze coming out. And uh, it looked pretty clear, looking at all of this and listening to him, that something pretty clear, clearly and obviously wrong was going on. It was pretty clear this family was not going to be able to afford our rates. Uh, you know, we, we charged hundreds of dollars an hour. But, you know, when we sat down and looked at this, I thought this should be a rather straightforward, simple, simple matter. Shouldn't take too much time. And, uh, you know, we know DuPont. We know their attorneys. And, and they see this and they understand that there's something going on like this. They'll probably fix this. I think to some degree, you know, I was fairly naive at the time. Uh, you know, when this when this uh, first started, the first contact I had when we brought, um, we started bringing the claims against DuPont, we actually filed a lawsuit, you know, to try to get the documents to get to the bottom of it. And the person who reached out to me was a lawyer at DuPont that I knew. And in fact, you know, he informed me right off the top when we started the case. Hey, no need to start getting into massive discovery where we produce all these documents and you spend countless hours going through all of this because we're already working with the US EPA. We've already reached out to them. Uh, we understand you know, there's some concerns about what's happening with the cows. So, you know, we've already reached out and formed uh, an expert team. And that report should be coming pretty soon. So that, that'll help us really understand what's going on here. So I thought, well, you know, let's, let's wait and see what this expert report says. Um, and, you know, when we got that report, 
in early 2000. Uh, that's when I began to, to realize maybe I had been a little too trusting. When that report came in and essentially blamed the farmer, said he simply is abusing his animals, doesn't understand how to raise them, and it's all his fault. And I had been out to the farm. These people knew how to raise their animals. They were not abusing them. If anything, they felt like these animals were, were family. It wasn't just livestock to them. I mean, they were taking it extremely hard, you know, when these animals would, would die or have to be put down. Uh, so, you know, I was looking through this report. I started to realize um, maybe um, what I'm hearing from the, the farmer, Mr. Tennant, I need to be thinking a little closer about what he's telling me, which is something's being covered up here. I went back and I said, look, you know, I want to know everything that you're putting into that landfill. And there we got a lot of pushback about getting into all these documents. We had to go to the court to get court orders to order these documents to be produced. And we finally got the orders and they finally were ordered to start giving us all of these materials. Going through these documents, I stumbled one day upon a document that mentioned the fact that a large quantity of a chemical referred to as PFOA or APFO was going into this landfill. And I had not seen any reference to that before. Um, so I went back to DuPont and I started asking them for all of their documents relating to this chemical. Um, and again, more pushback, <laughs> you know, more court fights. But we finally got uh, the court to order them to start giving us all of those documents. I started pouring through them. And what I saw there, you know, was really disturbing. This chemical was a completely man-made chemical. And it was eight carbons attached to flooring. And what I was uh, starting to understand was that was a very unique chemical structure. It made him an incredibly strong chemical bond. And DuPont was using it in the manufacturing process for Teflon. And it just so happened, this big manufacturing plant outside of Parkersburg, the one that was generating all the waste, going to this landfill next to Mr. Tennant's property, was the world's largest Teflon manufacturing facility. And a lot of that chemical was then being emitted up into the air, being emitted directly into the Ohio River, being put into unlined landfills where it would seep into the ground. Normal biological processes wouldn't break it down. Once that chemical got out into the environment, it would stay there virtually forever. And these companies understood that. And so they started to look at what are the toxic effects of this chemical? And they were finding all kinds of problems by the early 1960s, toxic effects in multiple different animal species. And then by the 1970s, one of the most disturbing things they found was it could get into people. It would stay in them. And not only would it stay there, but over time, every little additional exposure would build up. And they found that this chemical could cause cancer. And they're realizing it's in the public drinking water outside of our plant in West Virginia. But they're also realizing the state and the federal governments don't know anything about this. And the company's debating internally, do we tell anybody? And they didn't. They didn't tell anybody. 
So this had been a complete scam. And everything that had been going on here was consistent with what Mr. Tennant thought was happening, a cover-up of an extremely toxic chemical that was getting into not only the water his cows were drinking, but now I realized it was in the water of tens of thousands of Mr. Tennant's neighbors throughout this entire community had likely been there for decades. We were able to reach a settlement with DuPont pretty quickly for Mr. Tennant and his family. But, you know, I realized, you know, I may be the only person who has this information outside of the company. And I felt a real responsibility, you know, to, to, to get that information out. And so I thought, I'll put this together in a, in, a, in a package that I'll send to the regulators. And certainly when they see this, they will jump in. They will make sure that everybody gets clean water. This will be addressed. Uh, so I put that document together, sent it out to the US EPA and every government agency I could think of in March of 2001. And again, I guess naively, uh, it was essentially met with silence. But at that point, you know, the, the local community finally found out that this was in the water. And it was at that point that, that they came saying, hey, you know, what is this stuff? We want it out of our water and we want to know what's it going to do to us in the long term. And can't you help us? So once again, you know, we had to sit down and it, I had to decide, you know, do we take this the next step? Um, because this was going to be something a lot more complicated yeah, you know, this was no longer going to be a case with one farmer um, in one family. You know, to address this, we were going to have to be taking on a class action on behalf of the whole community on a contingency fee basis, no less, for our law firm, something we had really never done. Uh, and so that was a huge risk. And I don't think any of us, and I'll be the first to admit, and definitely not me, you know, realized how long it would take and how difficult it would be. Oh my goodness, this story I think is my favourite one in the series and it just makes you so angry. And what we see with Rob's story is the presence of a really deep-rooted sense of fairness and justice and a strong determination to get to the truth no matter what. Brian, what are your thoughts on the story so far? I was really moved by the fact that, uh, you know, his grandma had uh, sent, sent this chap along to him and I think it wasn't his line of work. I think what was fascinating was that he he basically works for the big corporates. And this is a farmer who's looking to take on a big corporate or find out what they're putting in the water. So I thought that that was extraordinary. And I think he basically turns from sort of gamekeeper to poacher. He has to change his role, uh, working in a very large law firm. And the farmer who comes to him can't afford his fees, but he demonstrates an extraordinary determination and resilience because he realizes there's something happening. He believes the farmer. And I think the second bit of this is part of it's about Rob and his determination. But the other bit is what big institutions do when they're found to be miscreant or something is suspicious. They cover it up. And the frequency with which large organizations and institutions cover things up I think is another fascinating area of human psychology. 
it's a really important part of us feeling safe in our day-to-day lives is belief in systems. And I think what you see with Rob is he has this expectation that once he lets DuPont know, once he lets the regulators know, once he lets the government authorities and the expert committee know, then things will get sorted out and they don't get sorted out. So what you see is this sense of injustice can be a really strong catalyst for positive action. And in our programs at Positive, we often talk about, you know, how do you adopt, how do you develop a challenge mindset? And I think that's what you see in Rob. He takes this injustice, the unfairness, this fact that actually they all knew what was going on and they didn't do anything about it. And he's able to actually challenge that anger, that negativity, that energy in a really positive way. And he's able to use that to propel forward the case for Mr. Tennant, but also for the people who are consuming this drinking water. And I think that's fascinating, the ability to not get stuck in the injustice of it all, but to actually move things forward in a way that's helpful. You know, it's something that we hope we could all do, but I think it definitely takes a certain type of resilience and a certain type of self-belief to be able to do that. And Elle, one of the other things that's really interesting about him is, you know, he kind of says quite openly up front that when he joined the firm, he didn't have a lot of kind of scientific expertise or knowledge. What are your thoughts on that? I think the fact that he was able to be so adaptable to different disciplines of science, I mean, this is quite complex stuff, right? So I think from having been a scientist, or I am a scientist, (laughs) um, learning about different areas of science is actually quite difficult. Um, A lot of specific skills and skill sets. So I think this is indicative of the fact that he's a, a really intelligent guy. And he's also got an opened mind around learning about new things, where a lot of us have barriers around learning new things. So if you see yourself as a psychologist, you don't see yourself necessarily as a physicist or a chemist or whatever. So I think that's one of his traits. Um, I think he's very intelligent and determined. But also picking up on some of the other factors I think are really interesting is he has this really strong self-belief. So um, people really vary in their levels of self-belief. So the fact there was a bit of a David and Goliath situation going on, I mean, he was part of a law firm, admittedly, but DuPont is a massive global multinational. And the fact he was happy to take them on based on his mind, basically, that shows amazing self-belief. Another point is that he has this amazing um, sense of feeling that he can change things. And in psychology, we call that an internal locus of control which means that you believe that um, you're able to influence the outcomes. So you're personally going to reduce or increase the likelihood of something happening. Where people with an external locus of control are more likely to believe that things happen to them, that they can't influence outcomes. So the fact that despite the odds being so far against him, really, that he felt like he directly could influence and change things, And I think that's a really, for me, that that's something really strong that comes through that I found so impressive that he um, he was willing to take on DuPont. So I think your point about locus of control is is a fantastic one. And it's something that's so important to tune into when considering resilience, because it is the fact that often in life, the things that we need resilience for are the things that um, we weren't anticipating or expecting. So where we can tune into and understand the factors that we can directly influence ourselves and we can start to build up a sense of I can and start to to really work towards seeing this thing as, as a challenge as opposed to a road blocker. And how do we navigate our way on this journey? How do we meet this challenge and give it our best possible shot? And I think that's what Rob does with abundance in a way that's really, really impressive. Brian, anything else you would add? I mean, his law firm could have said, no, you can't do this. And I think he had to persuade people that he could do this. So I think 
he could have walked away and actually been quite comfortable walking away. But I think what was amazing is that he decided not to. And I think this, this links to this concept of, I think, I think he realised something was wrong and he wanted to investigate it and he investigates it forensically. But I think it, 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 it's this ability to speak truth to power and DuPont are huge and powerful. And it's that Edmund Burke quote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And I think, I think what Rob does is he does something and I think that's really fascinating. We've seen this across our society time and time again. We saw it with the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. When the Lewisham police look at the Lewisham police, there's no case to answer. We saw it with mid-staffs. The cover-up is the problem. I think that's a fascinating point, you know, on, on the way that big companies and big organisations behave and how they respond to what's going on. I think there's much more emphasis in the modern world on corporate responsibility. And I think what is interesting in this story is whilst you see DuPont behaving badly and you see the fact that they knew what was going on and they made the decision not to tell anyone. You also see Rob's firm actually behave in a way that's quite admirable. So whilst Rob could have walked away, at the same time, his firm could have cut him loose or just said, you know, absolutely not, we can't do this. But they also committed to the fact that this was an important thing to do and they had that enduring um, support for Rob. I think sometimes in a big system, you feel like just a tiny cog in a wheel, but understanding that actually if you stand up if you speak up, then actually other people will listen. And if you can get the ear of the right people, there is the possibility of positive change. That's what we need to understand more and more of. I think that's really key. I think it links to that, you know, all the, all the research on, on social conformity, that we tend to do what other people are doing. And if you have big, powerful people telling you what to do, and this, you know, this is Milgram's experiment, uh, powerful authoritative figures telling you what to do, we tend to acquiesce, we tend to go with it. And I think Rob thought, hang on, I don't think I'm going to go with this. Uh, I'm going to challenge. I'm going to push back. And I think the fact he's such a problem solver, so he says, OK, cool, they've said no, or well, they're covering it up, so I'll find another way. I'll write to this agency, I'll do this. Um, he's a real doer, so he doesn't seem to be discouraged by all of the kind of various barriers he experiences. And I think a lot of us can relate to that, not on this scale or of this significance, but just in everyday life where we sort of experience different barriers. You go down different roads, it's a T-junction, you know, you've got to turn around, you've got to try again. Yeah, I find that his sort of ability to problem solve despite stress and responsibility and the situation he was in to just keep fighting. I think that's the the amazing sort of displays of resilience there. I love that. Just the sheer tenacity, sheer grit, just keeping on, keeping on. And now on that point about standing up within a big organisation and having the courage to do that, you've been looking in your research at the concept of speaking up and how we, how we make it easier for people to speak up. Yeah, so in theory, people tend to speak up when they feel it's safe to do so. And also they feel like by speaking up, it will lead to some meaningful change or action. So two conditions usually need to be present. So Rob's really interested in that context because it was safe in the context maybe of his firm. It wasn't broadly safe. And also from a perspective of leading to meaningful change or action, actually in a lot of instances, it led to kind of a neutral result. So um, he received a lot of pushback. So I think that those conditions are there sort of on average. So most people only speak up in those circumstances. But the other thing about speaking up is the fact that someone needs to listen up. 
and actually no one's listening, but he's making people listen. So I think he's a great sort of poster boy, shall we say, for trying to speak up even in difficult circumstances or when you're sort of speaking up against the system. Okay, so let's dive back in and see where Rob's story goes next. You know, DuPont had some of the some of the best lawyers around, uh, some people that uh, were some of the top in their field in representing companies in these kinds of cases. And, you know, it was it was incredibly difficult legal battle for for many, many years. And I was feeling, you know, an incredible responsibility, not only to the law firm and to make sure that, you know, we got this done and that we got it done as quickly as we could, but to our clients. I mean, the people that were drinking this stuff who were calling me every day talking about new people getting sick, new new family members that have died. These were real people drinking this every day. And, you know, it was incredible to think that we, we couldn't get the company to even go in and just put in filters and stop the ongoing exposure. You know, this, this was continuing. At one point, we even had the DuPont lawyers tried to go into court to to get a gag order, you know, to stop me from making this information available to the public. And, you know, I I see what's going on. I understand the legal maneuvering. I, I, I get what's going on, the games that get played through litigation. You know, every time I would get frustrated, I guess really angry about it, I would just try to figure out how can I how can I put this together in a better, more neutral compelling way and we had won some pretty critical what may seem like hyper technical legal issues but really uh, were critical in getting that case resolved so a lot of these things sort of combined (laughs) into a decision in uh, late 2004 that the company was going to resolve this We sat down and we tried to figure out, you know, what were the main things that our clients uh, really were concerned about that started this to begin with? That was clean water. They wanted the stuff out of their water now, and they wanted to know what it was going to do to them in the long term. So we were able to work out a deal with DuPont where they would provide for the clean water. They would pay for installation of treatment systems at all the impacted water supplies. So we'd stop that ongoing exposure right now. But then the, the sort of unique piece that we had to deal with that really I don't think anybody had really had to deal with before was what do you do about this long-term issue of what is this stuff doing to us? What is it doing to the people that are drinking it in their water? Now, having spent years at that point going through all of their internal studies, all of their experts, we could see significant health threats to people drinking this water. But DuPont was saying, oh, that's not a big enough sample size. There's not enough cases. So we decided we would find a way to resolve that scientific question. And that would be to to have independent scientists, people that both sides would pick, that would sit down, look at all the data, not only all of their internal studies, everything we thought was already convincing enough, but they would be able to do additional studies. They would look at that community in particular and do whatever studies, whatever additional work, we do it. And we would, we would agree if these independent scientists confirmed what we thought was already there. Then all of these people in the class, all of these people that have been drinking it for years, they would have the right to free medical testing, free medical monitoring for those diseases. DuPont would have to pay for it. 
and anybody that already had one of those diseases would have the right to go after DuPont for the damages. Now, obviously, the, the, the counter to that was going to be if the panel sided with DuPont, that would be the end of the case. So we took that risk and agreed to that, that settlement and empowered this independent panel to then set up these studies that took an incredible amount of time that nobody really realized it would take that long. This was something nobody had ever really done before, so we weren't sure whether the people in the community would, would participate. So we set up this kind of unique process where we agreed we would pay. We would use DuPont's money from the settlement, $70 million, to pay people to come in and have their blood tested. And that worked. We got 69,000 people out of the approximately 70,000 in that community to participate. They came in, they gave blood, they provided medical data. So it was incredibly successful in that regard. But because of that, all of that data, that was a massive amount of data turned over to these scientists who essentially had a blank check to design whatever studies they thought were necessary to confirm health effects within this group. And they designed some of the biggest, most complex human health studies ever done. We started the process in 2005, and it ended up taking seven years. The final results didn't come out until 2012. This is going to be one of the watershed days in financial markets history. It was a manic Monday in the financial markets. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars of the street tumbled over the weekend. Lehman Brothers, a 158-year-old firm, filed for bankruptcy. You know, there's this period between the time that we set up the settlement process in West Virginia and the time that these final results came out in 2012. That was uh, sort of a, a incredibly difficult period of time. Um, the economy was starting to collapse. You know, people are being let go. Uh, firms are, are losing incredible amounts of money. Um, and here I am, <laughs> you know, handling these cases that are costing lots of money. Uh, they're not bringing in anything. We're, we're waiting for the science panel. You know, I become concerned almost on a daily basis. How long can this make economic sense uh, for me to keep doing this, um, particularly in this kind of economy? And, you know, it was incredibly stressful. I'm sure a lot of that got in, internalized and uh, these episodes started to develop. You know, I was at home and um, sitting on, the, on a chair trying to put my shoes and socks on and noticing that my... My, my hand was starting to shake and my foot was starting to shake and I uh, thought that was a little odd. Went up to, to take a shower and um, started noticing the shaking and starting to feel a little dizzy and lightheaded. And I think that's when maybe my wife had come back, back in. I remember she asked me something and I started to respond and noticing that I was slurring my speech and not really able to respond. I knew what I wanted to say, but wasn't really able to get the words out. At that point, you know, my right arm and right leg just started shaking uncontrollably up and down. And so my wife was concerned I was having a stroke. We were fortunate that my family doctor lived on our corner. <laughs> so she was able to, to run down there and uh, have him come down. Luckily, he was home. My three sons uh, were at home at the time. and. 
you know, they were a little upset seeing this happening. Um, but they called the ambulance, uh, and the doctor was concerned I was having a stroke as well. Um, so they took me to the hospital, where this continued for about three hours. And uh, just stopped, suddenly just stopped. Um, did all kinds of brain scans and MRIs and really couldn't figure out exactly what was going on. So it was a um, scary incident, to, to, to say the least, but one that I thought, okay, well, um, we'll move on. <laughs> and um, you know, I'll just chalk that up to hopefully that was an unusual event. Um, um, you know, my wife was maybe not as convinced that we should just move on from that. And it wasn't shortly thereafter when it happened again. And uh, at this time, it was incredibly upsetting for me because I was at work. And I am put on a stretcher and carted through the halls into the elevator when everybody is leaving the building. So the elevators are full and everybody gets to see this. So um, uh, that was uh, a little upsetting and taken to the hospital and the same thing, the same three hour period. Um, uh, and then this, this continued to happen several more times. You know, the, the, the real uh, earth changing moment was actually, I think it was in, I believe 2011, when they came out and found that there was a link, I believe, with uh, preeclampsia. Um, and, you know, it was such an incredible <laughs> relief um, to, to know that they did get it. They did see it. Um, and so to have these scientists independently confirm that there were links, what they called probable links, with, with six different diseases um, was was huge, and um, it felt like a, a massive weight being lifted. Once that science panel confirmed these links with disease, anybody in the community who already was diagnosed with one of those six diseases had a right now to go forward with damages against DuPont. So we had about 3,500 people in the community come forward with one of those six diseases and bring claims. There were probably likely many more that had those diseases, but a lot of them were DuPont employees or others that frankly you know, made the decision they didn't want to pursue them. And that took many more years, but we were able to then resolve all of their claims for about 671 million. So those people were compensated. DuPont was then obligated to pay for the water filtration systems forever. We had the US EPA finally go out and start requiring public water supplies all over the country, all over the United States to start testing for the chemical. And it was found and it started the process to finally start setting rules and regulations for this chemical. We had international bodies start taking steps to ban the chemical worldwide. Um, so it's, it's had an incredible impact. If you, if you step back and look at this story, um, you know, the story of PFOA, it's gone far beyond Mr. Tennant and his, his property and, and one farm in West Virginia, or even that one community. I mean, his actions and the actions of the people around him to take this on and stick it out, you can change things that look unchangeable.
So now that we've heard Rob's whole story, for me, one of the things that really seems to shape his resilience is the narrative that he adopts and how he views the role that he plays in the story. And I love that line at the end where he says that you can change things that look unchangeable. I think what's lovely is is Rob felt this sense of responsibility to his firm, to his clients, to the people drinking the water. It became about understanding both the things that he could do to address what had happened in the past, but also to stop bad things happening in the future as well. And I think one of the things that can keep you going in times of challenge is your ability to fine tune your inner narrative. And I think what Rob does is he starts to tune his inner voice to his sense of purpose. And I think if you believe that you're working towards a solution and the ability not to be overwhelmed or immobilized by a challenge, but to focus on achieving a positive outcome, that's really, really powerful stuff. And I think for Rob, him attaching to his sense of purpose, the role he plays in this story, how he can help repair, how he can help the community to move forwards in a safe way. And it's this this lovely kind of essence that he just keeps going. So he could have stopped, I think as Brian said earlier, he could have walked away at lots of different points in this story, but he gets the agreement to have the, the water filtration system put in place so that from here on out, the water will be clean and drinkable. But then he's worried about actually, what? how do we support those people that are already ill because of this? So I think it's that ability to kind of keep going with this and how actually the voice that he has inside his head being very strongly aligned to a sense of rightness and a sense of purpose is a really strong anchor for keeping going in the face of this challenge. Elle, what are your thoughts and what's jumped out for you? I think um, for him, the good outcome was all about helping people. It was about helping the community. It wasn't, we're taking down DuPont. It was, there was sort of no negative or unhelpful motivations for him. It was all about helping people. And I think that must have been a really powerful motivator, despite the fact that ultimately it sounds like he made himself ill. So the stress and the challenge of everything he experienced and that huge responsibility he carried did actually take its toll and leave its mark on his physical health. And we know that stress can, um, which is sort of a physiological symptom, is really strongly associated with lots of sort of other physical problems. There's just something about that perseverance and the fact that that was tied into not only what he believed was right and wrong, but ultimately it's really admirable that that was linked to trying to support a community and the health of that community. I think you're spot on with that. Like the impact that it ultimately had on his physical health is an interesting one to consider because ultimately this story is a good news story at the end of it. So he has achieved this phenomenal feat that not many people in life will ever achieve. He's taken on this huge challenge and he's been successful after decades of perseverance. But I think one of the interesting things to tune into is the fact that when we are dealing with these difficult things in life, they can take their toll. And that actually it's not about the absence of these things. There's a researcher who looks at trauma called Bessel van der Kolk, and he has this this terminology that the body keeps a score. So actually when we endure these difficult things in life, it will play out in our body, it will play out in our physical health, our psychological health. And Rob's doing a lot of things that are really helpful to him. But the fact that actually he did experience these symptoms is probably quite a normative thing, Brian. Would you agree? Because it was it was years and years and years that he was under this intense level of pressure. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, just echoing what you both said, I think I think his sense of responsibility, his sense of duty, 
really drove him and uh, you know, his comments about the games they were playing, the gag order, and he perseveres. I mean, interestingly, Christine Maslach wrote about this years ago. She wrote a book called Burnout, The Cost of Caring. And you see this very deeply with Rob. I think he cares a lot about the people who are suffering. They're still putting it in the water. They're doing nothing. I think what's really interesting, just to pick up on the point you made about uh, the, the relationship between stress and physical health, in the last 10, 20 years, this has just come to the forefront, partly because of uh, medicine looking at this area of sort of psychoneuroimmunology and how stress changes cortisol and changes chemistry. And there's very good data now that, that this level of stress can, can impact cardiovascularly. So it can, it can increase your risk of stroke and transient ischemic attacks, which is, which is what Rob experienced. And again, I think his tenacity, because most of us, I think, if we had a couple of strokes, might think it's time to quit. But he doesn't think it's time to quit. He keeps on keeping on. And I think, I, I think that's just ex- extraordinary. He does mention this capacity, I think, as a lawyer to, although he understands the games they're playing, he needs to keep a cool head. So I think he, he, he controls his emotional side. But, you know, it's a bit like squeezing a jelly. He's in a really tough place. And I think it played out in his body uh, and, that, and, and, and caused physical symptoms. But to continue despite that is, is quite extraordinary. And I think it raises a really important kind of dilemma for us to consider as well, because sometimes the very things that sustain us and the things that are good strategies for building resilience, like the ability to attach to your sense of purpose and your sense of meaning, those things we know are great and protective and help keep us going. But also it's so, so important to think about how we factor self-care into the challenges that we face, because actually if we are coming up against a challenge that is going to be enduring, it's going to be weeks or months or years of hard work, then actually we know it's really important as well to tune into ourselves and how we best look after ourselves during that period so that we are able to put ourselves in the best place to deal with that kind of physical impact, the fatigue, the stress all of those things that will start to impact us over time, we need to make sure that we're able to try and punctuate our days and our weeks in ways which are really helpful for us. And I think that's what we do a lot in the positive program is try to tune people into the things that help us to recalibrate. And just that knowledge, that actually, it's really not selfish to take time out to engage in self-care. This is the kind of very thing that can sustain us when we're up against these really difficult challenges. You know, from from our perspective, this is the end of the story. But for Rob, it's not. And for, I don't know, Ellen Brian, if you've watched the movie Dark Waters, which covers the story and it's a fantastic movie, you see at the end that the, the fight hasn't stopped. So Rob is persisting, he's keeping going and he's taking this much wider. So he's looking at a worldwide ban on the chemical and also looking at other chemicals other than PFOA. So that for me is just incredible. I can't believe that anyone would have that sheer grit, tenacity, determination. At any point, he could just have clapped himself on the back and said, well done, Rob, that'll do now. I think that uncertainty after having spent so many years already pulling together the case. I mean, I struggle when the delivery of a parcel is going to take a week. I mean, <laughs> seven years. Uh, it's a long it's a long old slog. And, and what he was doing with his time and how his sense of purpose um, remained so strong during that period of uncertainty. So, as you know, humans don't, we don't like uncertainty. 
and so seven years of it is super uncertain. I think that was probably one of the hardest parts of his battle. I mean, I can't speak for him, but I'd imagine being that limbo period would have been extremely difficult. And I think it, um, dare I uh, relate it to Nietzsche, who said, if you have a why, you can work out almost any how. And that's exactly what Rob does. And I think that took him through those seven years. He had a real why, and then he works out how he's going to achieve his ends. And I, I think it's a, it's a fantastic story of uh, human endeavour. I actually quoted that Nietzsche earlier in the podcast series. That's fine. I was going to say, <laughs> you're quoting Al now. I think it needs to be repeated. <laughs> and actually, it works really well with this one. Rob's story is inspiring in so many ways. And for me, the key takeaway is the power of self-belief. So when the odds feel stacked against you, it's so important to believe in yourself, to back yourself and to keep on working at it. And I think for me, that's what Rob demonstrates in abundance. Brian, what are your key takeaways? I think resilience, tenacity, determination, perseverance. And I I think he, once he realised what was happening, I think it just gave him his uh, raison d'etre and he couldn't let go of it until he achieved what he'd set out to do. And I think it's a, a wonderful, wonderful story. What about you, Al? Yeah, I'd echo the self-belief piece and then that combined with really, really, really hard work. And that combination pays off really well. But I think the resilience and tenacity is what enables him to persevere with all of the really hard work. So I think the world is better off for Rob Billot existing. So that brings us to the end of Rob's story and the end of the series as well. We really hope you've enjoyed it. And if you're interested in learning more about the psychological skills and concepts that we talk about in this series, we're now running open positive programs for people from all backgrounds. The program trains you in four core areas of psychological capability and helps you to develop practical skills that will allow you to adapt and thrive, both in your personal and professional lives. You can find out more by following the link in the description and you can also save 10% with our special Resilient Road discount code, RR10. The Resilient Road is brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Sinead Divine French, with Brian Marion and Elle Crush and featured Rob Ballot. You can find out more about Rob's incredible journey in his book, Exposure, Poisoned Water, Corporate Greed and One Lawyer's 20-Year Battle Against DuPont. If you enjoyed this series, please remember to subscribe, share and leave a review. It really helps us to reach more people. This episode was produced by Cass Denton, Eli Block and Palama Kaufman, with sound design by Eli Block. It was mixed by Palama Kaufman and the executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. For more information about Positive Group and the work that we do, go to www.positivegroup.org.